Good morning, everyone. If you're new with us, um, let me just begin by saying several weeks ago, we started a new series here at Calvary Elk Grove, a series that we've entitled The Battle for Truth. Now, I'll warn you, especially if you're new, it's a heavy series. I'd like to tell you that the uplifting songs that we heard from the kids, I'm going to continue and give you a very uplifting message. I'm afraid that's not going to happen today. It's the pastor's responsibility to, yes, lead and feed the flock of God. But it's also our responsibilities to watch and warn. Today I'm going to need to warn you. Because there are things that have infiltrated into the church today that we really need to be on guard against. And that's what this series has been about. Looking at some of the doctrinal error that has crept into the church. Now I'd like to um, introduce this morning's uh, study by drawing your attention to a book that was written back in 1970. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Maybe some of you even read it. The book was called Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Tens of thousands of copies of this book were sold in Christian bookstores all across this country. It was nothing more than Hinduism dressed up in positive mental attitude, success, motivation, psychological terminology. The author, Richard Bach, said the whole thing was dictated to him from a disembodied spirit from out on the astral plane. Now, Paul the Apostle warned us that in the last days some would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. We're seeing this today. The book was read by thousands of Christians, especially Christian businessmen, who had copies in their offices with a picture of Jonathan flying through the air and the caption underneath that read, I can because I think I can. Do you know that there are many sincere and well-intentioned Christians who think that that's what faith is? They pray and believe, and if they believe hard enough, their faith will make it happen. Folks, this is just another element of a lie that is infiltrated into the church. The doctrinal cornerstone of the lie, and if you want to know what the lie is, you've got to get the, the, the CDs from a few weeks ago. We looked at the lie in detail. But the doctrinal cornerstone of the lie which is also the doctrinal cornerstone of his newism, the New Age movement, and other organizations, is that man is actually God, or that he's evolving into godhood. And of course, this delusion was at the heart of the serpent's lie to Eve, that she could become a god, she could become like God. That lie has been around for thousands of years. It has spread throughout the earth in various forms. Hinduism is one, the New Age movement, Mormonism, there's others. But the, the dangerous, the um, tragic thing about it is that the lie in the last generation has crept into the church and has become the doctrinal cornerstone of the positive confession movement. It's amazing to see how Hinduism and the New Age teachings are being embraced by thousands of evangelical pastors and teachers who are Christianizing these doctrines of demons and are now passing them off as powerful new truths and principles by which you can, as Kenneth Hagin puts it, write your own ticket with God. What are the foundational beliefs of the positive confession faith movement? Now, let me just stop and say this. In the course of this series, we're going to be dealing with different groups and organizations and things in the church. Today, we're going to focus on those in the positive confession movement. We have a lot of wonderful brothers and sisters in those kind of churches. Some of you at one time maybe went to a church that was a word of faith church. 
There are a lot of wonderful believers who really love Jesus Christ in these churches. I don't take issue with them. I take issue with the leaders who are teaching things that are not biblical. And we need to kind of look at what these teachings are. We've already looked at the first one last week. The first tenet or the first main belief of the positive confession movement, and that is, first of all, that man is a little God in God's class. Kenneth Copeland, one of the leaders in the movement, has said, and I quote, We are a class of gods. God himself spawned us from his innermost being. You don't have a God in you. You are one, end quote. Earl Palk, another leader in the movement, says, and I'm quoting him, Just as dogs have puppies and cats have kittens, so when God has children, he has little gods. Of course, the belief that we are gods is foundational to positive confession theology because the reason they say that we can allegedly speak the creative word and call those things which are not as though they were, as God does, is because we are in God's class. We are little gods. Of course, this then gives rise to the second main teaching of the positive confession movement, that faith is a force that God and man can use. Now remember that Hinduism and the New Age movement both teach, and they're not alone, but they teach that we are gods, and that the God force flows through each of us. And as gods, we have unlimited power within, just waiting to be tapped into and used to create whatever reality we desire. So the force of Hinduism and the New Age movement, and let's throw in Star Wars for good measure, because it's the same thing. The force of these groups has been Christianized, brought into the church, and has been renamed faith. Charles Capps, another leader in the, in the movement, said, and I'm quoting, God's word in your mouth produces a force called faith. It generates a spiritual force called faith. Kenneth a. Copeland said, faith is your servant. It's a force just like gravity that we can use because we are a part of God and have all of his capabilities. Kenneth Hagin, who's the granddaddy of the positive confession movement in his booklet titled Having Faith in Your Faith, writes, that's what you've got to learn to do to get things from God. Have faith in your faith. Now, as a proof text... To support this teaching, they will quote Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, which actually says, here's what it really says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed, created by the word of God. But those in the positive confession movement twist that verse and quote it this way. We understand that it was by faith that God framed the worlds. By that little twist of terms, Faith is no longer man's belief in God's power which created the universe, but now faith has been turned into a force that God used to create the universe. A force that works according to certain laws, just like gravity and electricity. We all use electricity. We understand how it works. We've harnessed its power. We all can tap into it and use it for our own benefit. The same is true with this force called faith. If you just learn the laws that govern this force, we can then use this force called faith to create our own circumstances, even as God used this force to create the universe. Hey, we're in God's class. We have the same capabilities. The third main teaching of the positive confession movement is that faith's force is released by speaking words. Charles Capps, one of the leaders in the positive confession movement, has said, and I'm quoting, this is not theory, it is fact. 
It is spiritual law. It works every time it is applied correctly. You set them, spiritual laws, in motion by the words of your mouth. Everything you say will come to pass. End quote. Paul Young Gi Cho, the pastor of the largest church in the world in Seoul, Korea, writes, and I quote, by the spoken word, we create our universe of circumstances. Again, Charles Cap says, words are the most powerful thing in the universe. I thought God was the most powerful one in the universe. But words, he says, are the most powerful thing in the universe. He goes on to say, words are containers. They carry faith or fear, and they produce after their kind. Now, that belief that words are powerful containers that produce after their kind, well, it leads to the next main teaching of the positive confession movement, and that is, since there is power in words, you get what you say or confess, whether positive or negative. Hence the name, the positive confession movement. Hey, folks, words are powerful. And you don't want to say any negative confessions because that's bad. So you can't say, man, I feel like I'm getting a cold. You're going to get a cold. In fact, if you've got a cold, you've got to deny you have a cold. Maybe you've seen some of your friends who are involved in churches like this and their eyes are red and their noses are running and you got a cold? No, I'm healthy. I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> really? Because you look sick to me. No, I'm not sick at all. I'm, I'm good. I don't know. You don't look so good. But you can't say anything negative. It's the positive confession movement. But it's also the positive confession movement because they say the key to releasing the power in words is to speak it out loud. This activates the force of faith. So if you want a million dollars, you got to say it out loud. Million dollars come to me. Now, you might laugh at that, but that's exactly what Gloria Copeland, Kenneth's wife, did when she wanted to buy this big new house. And she said, I knew I had authority over the money, so I spoke out loud, money, I command you to come to me. Angels, you go ahead and bring it to me. She went on to say, angels are our servants. They will do our bidding. Why? Because we're in God's class. (laughs) Therefore, we can boss the angels around too. But there is power in the spoken word you got to speak it. Kenneth Hagin says you get what you say. Paul Young Cho, only by mouth confession can faith power be released, allowing tremendous things to happen. Gloria Copeland said, and I'm quoting, Remember the key to receiving the desires of your heart is to make the words of your mouth agree with what you want. End quote. Robert Tilton, he said, Whatever comes out of your mouth shall be produced in your life. And again, Kenneth Hagin said, if you confess sickness, you get it. If you confess health, you get it. Whatever you say, you get. There's power in words. And that power is released through speaking the words. Well, that brings us to the final main point of their theology. There's probably other things. We can go on forever. But the fifth main uh, element of word of faith or positive confession theology is that Since faith is a force that works according to laws, you don't have to be a Christian to use these laws. Anybody can use the laws of faith, just like anybody can use electricity. You don't have to be a Christian. And so really, this faith force being controlled by laws, well, anybody could use it, Christian or even a pagan. Kenneth Hagin said, and I'm quoting, Because all men are spirit beings, therefore anyone, whether Christian or pagan, can release this faith force 
by speaking words. If he only believes in his words as God believes in his words. Now, why are these teachings so important and exciting to those in the movement? Well, it's because, as Kenneth Hagin says, they allow you to write your own ticket with God. And what is that ticket, you may ask? Why, it's health and wealth, of course. Robert Tilton said, and I'm quoting, The Bible is God's book of success, the greatest success book you could ever read. And like so many positive confession teachers, he places a real strong emphasis on financial success. Gloria Copeland said, The body of Christ is going to end up with all the money because God's will is prosperity. Kenneth Hagin teaches that for a pastor or anyone to drive a Chevrolet instead of a luxury car isn't being humble, he said, it's being ignorant of God's law of prosperity that works for Christians or pagans alike. Totally misrepresenting what Jesus was saying, Gloria Copeland enthusiastically declares, and I'm quoting from her, you give a dollar for the gospel's sake, and a hundred dollars belongs to you. You give ten dollars and receive a thousand dollars. Give a thousand and receive a hundred thousand. I know you can multiply, but I want you to see it in black and white, she says. Give one airplane and receive one hundred times the value of the airplane. Give one car and the return would furnish you a lifetime of cars. In short, Mark 1030 is a very good deal. Now, folks, that is not selfless giving. That is selfish investing. It is not selflessly giving to God out of love. Love for him, love for the lost, love because you want to see people getting saved and the kingdom of God built. No, you're giving because you're expecting to get back a hundred times what you're giving. It's selfish investing to build your kingdom on the earth. And the tragic result is it encourages people to pursue after God, not for who he is, but for what he gives. So it's not the giver, it's the gifts that people are interested in. It's not the blesser, it is the blessings. And all of a sudden now, any love that I had for God has been polluted by self-interest. The motivation is just terrible. And God will not bless anything that is done out of a selfish motivation. Not to mention that Paul, the apostle, calls teachings like these In 1 Timothy 6, the useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, is a way to get rich. From such, Paul said, withdraw yourself. Don't even have fellowship with those teaching this kind of thing. He goes on to say, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I wish people would just read the word. And just see what it plainly is saying on this issue. Dave Wilkerson, a pastor and best-selling author, has said, and I quote, There is an evil wind blowing into God's house, deceiving multitudes of God's chosen people. It is a spiritual takeoff on Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. This perverted gospel seeks to make gods of people. They are told, Your destiny is in the power of your mind. 
Whatever you can conceive is yours. Speak it into being. Create it by a positive mindset. Success, happiness, perfect health is all yours if you will only use your mind creatively. Turn your dreams into reality by using mind power, end quote. Well, Dave Hunt in his book Beyond Seduction says with regard to this, and listen to this. He says, and I quote, In the world of the occult, the metaphysical mind power of one's belief is reinforced by speaking it aloud. This act releases what occultists call the creative power of the spoken word and brings into existence whatever one says or decrees. This occult idea forms the basis for mantras, incantations, spells, and hexes. Nevertheless, the faith teachers continue to expound upon this unbiblical and occult thesis and represent it to be the teaching of Scripture through their ministry in pulpit, radio, television, and in books such as The Tongue of Creative Force and You Can Have What You Say, end quote. See, we're talking about the lie and how it's come into the church. And at the very heart of the lie that Satan gave to Eve, that she bought into, was, look, exalt self. Don't listen to God. Don't be submissive to God. You do what you think is right. You do what's best for you. So self-gratification, self-actualization, self was at the heart of the appeal that Satan made to Eve in the garden. This has been embraced by many different groups and organizations, some secular, some spiritual. But it really has its roots in the lie that Satan told Eve. Don't listen to God. Do what you want to do. Do your own thing. Do whatever pleases you, your heart. And those in the occult have embraced this. And of course, to get the things that they want, they believe that there's power in the spoken word. This is not new. This has come into the church during the last 30 or 40 years, but it's been in the occult for centuries. People in the occult will tell you that they've always believed that there is power in the spoken word. That is the basis for mantras and hexes and incantations and spells. If you repeat certain phrases over and over again, that's a mantra. It releases spiritual power. If you will say certain combinations of words, that's a spell. It will energize the spirit realm and cause spirits to come and do your bidding. This is nothing new. And we're seeing it in the church today, although it's being Christianized. It's Christianized doctrines of demons. And we need to see it for what it is. Now, what is faith? True faith. Is it really some kind of mind power that we can use to manipulate God into giving us what we want? And if that is true, then what does that do to the sovereignty of God? Actually, The positive confession definition of faith is the very antithesis of what true biblical faith is all about because that definition of faith makes me the Lord, it puts me in control, and then God becomes my servant. Isn't that true? If you buy into this teaching that their faith is a force and it can be released to the spoken word and you can have whatever you want by just basically speaking it into existence, that makes God my servant and I become the Lord. Instead of what the Bible really teaches about faith, that faith is actually a way for me to submit my life to God's authority. He's the Lord. I'm his servant. I don't call the shots. He's my master. And I do his bidding. But one of the favorite proof texts of those in the positive confession movement to prove that there is power in faith 
and we can use it to do whatever we want, comes out of Mark chapter 11. Why don't you turn there? And I'm going to read to you verses 23 and 24, where Jesus said, he's talking to his disciples now. He said, for assuredly, I say to you, whoever says, oh, there it is, the power of the spoken word. See it there? Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things which things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Whoa, that's pretty clear. Right out of the mouth of Jesus. Doesn't that prove what they're teaching? Folks, everything in the Bible has a context. And if you don't see it in its context, you're going to misinterpret what it's saying. As the old saying goes, a text taken out of context is a pretext. Go back to verse 22, which Jesus used to preface those two verses. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in your faith. No, he said, have faith in God. Listen to me. If you say to a mountain, look, take a hike and jump into the sea. And it doesn't. Know this. Either God moved that mountain or Satan moved that mountain, but your faith didn't move that mountain. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I know there is no power inherent in faith. Faith has no power in and of itself. Just like an electrical cord has no power in and of itself. It's a conductor of power. As long as it's plugged into a power source, it could carry power from point A to point B. But in and of itself, it has no power inherent within it. The same is true with faith. Faith is a conduit that can conduct the power of God from heaven onto the earth. And in that regard, it's important. But it has no power in and of itself. That's why Jesus did not say, have faith in your faith. He said, have faith in in God. First of all, having faith in your faith is not only illogical, it's absurd. Because faith only finds its meaning in the object it's attached to. Maybe you've heard someone say this. Hey, it's not important what you believe, only that you believe in something. That's ridiculous. Of course it's important what you believe. The Bible says what you believe will determine where you spend eternity. That's pretty important. You can believe a lie with all your heart. And it won't save you. And I always think of these poor Muslim young men who are deceived into thinking that if they die in jihad, fighting the infidels, they will go immediately into paradise. And so as they're strapping on that bomb belt, would anyone here deny the sincerity and the strength of their faith? To die for what you believe is about as strong a faith as it gets. Yet the horrible reality is when they detonate that thing and they open their eyes, they're not in paradise. Because you can believe a lie with all your heart and it still won't save you. There is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end thereof is the way of death. That's why the Bible says it's, says it's always the object of your faith that's important. It's never the faith itself. That's why Jesus said, have faith in God. One day the, one day the apostles asked Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, we like to have some miracle-working faith. Would you increase our faith? Jesus responded by saying, Guys, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to that mulberry tree over there, be uprooted and cast into the sea, and would obey you. Has anyone here ever seen a mustard seed? I have. It's a very, very small, minute little seed. To have the faith of a mustard seed 
is to have a very, very small amount of faith. Indicating it isn't the size of your faith that's important. It is the object of your faith that is important. And only then if the object is God himself. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, but wait a minute. What about that woman in the Gospels who was hemorrhaging? And she said, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' robe, I will be healed. And so as he was walking by, she reached out, touched the hem of his robe, and was healed immediately. And Jesus turned to her and said, woman, your faith has made you well. What about that? Well, Jesus wasn't saying that it was some cosmic mind power called faith that healed her. He was simply saying to her, woman, because of your faith in God, your faith has become a conduit that has allowed the power of God to flow from God into your life to heal your body. But folks, only because it was God's will that she be healed. Only because it was God's will that she be healed. Her faith was by no means writing her own ticket with God. You see, faith, no matter how strong, and prayer, no matter how fervent, still has to pass through the grid of God's sovereign will. Always. Didn't John teach us this in 1 John 5? He said, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us because we have asked according to his will, then we know that we will have the things that we have asked of him. You see, it doesn't matter how strongly I want something and pray for it and believe in it. If it's not God's will that I get it, all the faith in the world isn't going to force God to give it to me. Now, all the big things that are really, really the most important things in life, I believe God wants us to have. What do I mean? How about the salvation of our families? We know it's the will of God. God's will is that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. So when you pray for unsafe spouses and loved ones and children and so on, you know you're praying according to the will of God and you believe with all your heart that God will save that person. And I'm convinced he will. Oh, what about their free will? He won't override that, but he's God. He can make things so miserable for them. It's just easier to submit than it is to resist. So have at it. Yeah, let them have their free will. God can chase them down, tackle them, bring them into the kingdom. You believe that. But there's so many things that we pray for that are just not the will of God. And no matter how strongly I pray and confess and believe, if it is not God's will... He's not going to give it to me. And would you really want it any other way? I mean, would you really want to override God's perfect will for him to give you what you want? I I don't want that. You see, Oswald Chambers, I think, really put his finger on it. He said, and I'm quoting, faith, true biblical faith, never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. And that, folks, is really at the heart of what true biblical faith is all about. It's simply trusting in God. It's not some complicated thing that is governed by these many, many laws that I have to learn. Faith is just simply trusting in God. It's trusting in his love, in his will, in his provision, in his care. I mean, true faith trusts God. It doesn't seek to control God. It seeks to be controlled by God. Why? Because if I really trust him, that his ways are best, he's got my best interest in his heart, why wouldn't I want him to take full control of my life? He can do a much better job than I can do in leading my life. I mean, he sees the big picture. He knows what's coming down the road next week or next year or five years down the road. I mean, because I only know what's happening right in front of me, 
I tend to make decisions based on my immediate circumstances. But God says, no, 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 no. You see, I know what's coming down the road. Now, if you'll trust me, what I choose for your life right now may not seem like the best. But trust me, it'll work out. And you'll see that it was the best for you down the road. That's where trust comes in. That's what faith is really all about. You see, the positive confession movement's definition of faith isn't faith at all. It's just another attempt by some to do the very thing that Adam and Eve tried to do in the Garden of Eden. Be in control, call the shots, think that they knew better than God what was best for their lives. Isn't that what was in the heart of the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden? And that continues to be at the heart of man's rebellion today. I do not want to submit my life to God. I want to do my thing. I want to do what I feel is best for me. That has always led to problems. Because you're resisting the one who loves you perfectly and knows what's best. See, those in the movement like to uh, use Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account to prove that there's power in the spoken word. You don't have to turn to it because you know what, uh, what it says. How that is Moses is recounting the six days of creation. And, you know, we read, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herbs and fruit-bearing trees. And they came into existence. And they will point to that and go, well, look, it says God said this and God said that. And every time God spoke, things came into existence. So this proves there's power in the spoken word. Well, I'm no rocket scientist, believe me. But I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to understand that those things were created not because God said it, but because it was God who said it. I don't think these are deep theological concepts. I mean, if you just go to the Word and just open it up and not try to read into it what you want it to say and just take from it what God is saying, I don't think it's all that hard. But can you imagine how horrible this world would be? if there really was power in words and everything that we said came to pass, no matter how malicious or misguided, if it was said in the moment of anger, we really didn't mean it. Can you imagine the world that we would be living in? First of all, I'm not quite sure how many parents would be left alive. (laughs) Because today, there's a lot of children who are very rebellious and who often say, I hate you, I wish you were dead. So, I mean, that would take care of most of the parents in our society, at least. But it would really turn this world into utter chaos, where God would no longer be in control. He'd no longer be sovereign, but would have to to stand by helplessly and let the uh, law of faith bring into existence whatever we said, whether we meant it or not. Folks, now we're back to Hinduism. Hinduism believes that God is an impersonal force that works according to laws, the laws of karma. And you know what? An impersonal force, like electricity, doesn't have... A sovereign will. It just does whatever the laws dictate. By the way, let me just say this. The idea of positive and negative confessions. You won't find that in Scripture, by the way. The concept of positive and negative. You know what that sounds like? Electricity. That's electricity. Positive and negative. It's turning God into a force that has to operate according to certain laws that I learn and can use for my own benefit. You see, it's just the same old lie that the church is being programmed into believing is really biblical Christianity. First of all, the teaching that if you had enough faith, you could have health and wealth and write your own ticket with God and live a life of success and blessing without any pain or suffering, folks, just isn't biblical. 
in Hebrews chapter 11. The writer is giving us, in fact, the whole chapter is, uh, is called the, uh, the Hall of Faith. You know, I mean, you've heard about the Hall of Fame and, and the baseball and other sports have their own Hall of Fame where they, they showcase some of the greatest athletes that have ever played the game. In Hebrews 11, we have the Hall of Faith showcasing some of the greatest believers that have ever lived in the faith that they demonstrated. You want to talk about faith. Big faith, incredible faith. Read Hebrews chapter 11. But around verse 35, the writer says, as he's talking about these people, he said, you know, some of the women received their dead raised to life again. Yes, God has done miracles through faith. But others, he goes on to say, were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. Look, the Bible says very clearly that the greatest examples of faith in the history of the world have been people that were the most abused and persecuted and who suffered the most. Not the ones that were the most prosperous and problem-free. We need to get back to what the Bible is really saying about these things. Stop listening to personalities on television who are reinventing these concepts. And look, who's our example in the Christian life that we should always follow after? Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus was a man acquainted with grief and suffering. And as his followers, we can expect the same. I mean, Paul the Apostle said, look, the deep desire of my heart every day of my life is to know him. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's true. But I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What are you saying, Paul? Paul is saying, look, if you want Jesus, you can't pick and choose what attributes of Jesus you like. Either you take Jesus for who he is, or you don't. Jesus walked in power, that's true, but he was also a suffering servant, who when it was all said and done, went to a cross and died for our sins. Now, if we're going to be his followers, yes, I believe he wants us to walk in power. I believe that being spirit-filled is what that power is all about. However, I also believe that as Jesus was a man of of sorrows and suffering, we are also going to suffer for our faith. And by the way... God is more concerned about our character than our comfort. That's why we suffer. Because as Paul said in Romans 5, he said not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Folks, God's will for our lives is not to help us lay up for ourselves treasures on the earth, It's to help us lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven and to glorify his name. And the way this is accomplished is by him conforming us into the image of his son. And listen to me. It's adversity and not prosperity that becomes the chisel that God uses to chisel away from my life the carnality and the selfishness and the worldliness which allows the image of Christ to emerge out of my life. The mistaken belief that we ought to be immune 
from suffering has led to an unbalanced emphasis on healing and miracles in the positive confession movement. But sometimes suffering is the will of God. Instead of God's will always being to deliver us from these terrible things, sometimes God uses suffering and it's God's will that we suffer because it's only through the suffering are we conformed into the image of Christ. And if all you do is pray that all negative circumstances are kept from your life, you will live a very shallow Christian life. And you will live your whole life and will die without being transformed one iota into the image of Christ. Let me bring this to a close. Man has always been greedy and self-centered and self-indulgent and self-willed from the beginning. The church used to call these things sin. But now it's found a way to really sanctify greed and selfishness by calling it faith. Greed is good. Materialism is good. God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to, God doesn't want you to suffer. Look, your parents, you have children. Do you want your kids to suffer? Of course not. Do you want them to have the best in life? Sure you do. Well, we're God's kids. He doesn't want us to suffer. Sufferings of the devil. If suffering and pain or things come into your life, you've got to rebuke that in the name of Christ. You've got to take authority over that and call down the blessings because it's God's will that you be prosperous and healthy and wealthy and everything else. That's not what the Bible says. And to think that the goal of Jesus going to the cross and purchasing our salvation with his own precious blood was to make me wealthy on the earth sickens me. To think that that was the goal, to teach that that was the whole goal that my Savior suffered and died, was to make us wealthy on this earth, that we could have success and drive the nicest cars in town, have the biggest houses and the biggest bank accounts, to me is nauseating. And it's as Paul said, would characterize the attitude in the church in general in the last days, where men would have a form of godliness, but really be lovers of self. Which means they wouldn't want to die to self. Which means any churches that teach about the cross. Oh, every church gives the cross lip service. I'm talking about churches who really teach their people to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow Jesus because that is the Christian life in a nutshell. That's not a popular message anymore. It's much more popular to hear how God wants me healthy and wealthy, successful, how God has given me power to be in control to speak my circumstances into existence, and so on. And you don't think it's true? Listen to what Oral Roberts said at one time, a leader in the movement. He said this, We have a divine right to ask, Lord, what's in it for me? To which God responded through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 45, Do you seek great things for yourself? Don't seek them. Seek them not. Give you two more quotes and we'll close. Dave Wilkerson raises some solemn questions. Listen to this. He says, and I quote, How many of us would serve him if he offered nothing but himself? No healing, no success, no prosperity, no worldly blessings, no miracles, no signs, no wonders. What if once again we had to take joyfully the spoiling of our goods? What if instead of painless living, we suffered cruel mockings, stonings, bloodshed being sawn in two? What if instead of our beautiful homes and cars, we had to wander about in deserts and sheepskins, hiding in dens and caves? 
What if, instead of prosperity, we were destitute, afflicted, and tormented, and the only better thing provided for us was Christ? End quote. I wonder how many people in the church today would follow the Lord if that was the case. If there would be no prosperity, no promise of healing, no beautiful homes, just suffering, persecution, but we had Jesus. And that's all we need. Chuck Colson writes, and I quote, For the church, this ought to be an hour of opportunity. The church alone can provide a moral vision to a wandering people. The church alone can step into the vacuum and demonstrate that there is a sovereign living God who is the source of truth. But the church is in almost as much trouble as the culture. For the church has bought into the same value system, fame, success, materialism, and celebrity. Preoccupation with these values has also perverted the church's message. The assistant of one renowned media pastor, when asked the key to his man's success, replied, Without hesitation, we give the people what they want. This heresy, Colson goes on to say, is at the root of the most dangerous message preached today, the what's in it for me gospel. Well, if you're going to give people what they want, if the goal is to fill up the church by giving the customer, which is what they are now, what they want, people don't want to hear messages that are negative. They don't want to hear how they have to give up things and sacrifice and take up their cross and deny themselves. What are they going to want? They're going to want to hear messages that tell them that they are in control. They can have what they desire. They can be rich and wealthy and healthy. And because they want these things taught to them, they're going to gather for them to themselves teachers because they have itching ears. And they're going to have these teachers tell them what they want to hear. Teachings that depart from sound doctrine and are just fairy tales, as Paul said. The fact that I'm a god that I can have whatever I say like God. That's a pretty that's a whopper. That's a pretty good fairy tale. Listen, the faith once delivered to the saints is under great attack. We've already established that. The attack has always been from the outside. The world has always persecuted the church, always persecuted the people of God, always tried to destroy the truth of God. The real dangerous thing that we're seeing now that has come about in the last 30 or 40 years is that the battle has now moved inside the walls of the church and we are fighting for our lives for the truth of God. Folks, just watch cable TV. Watch some of these pastors, some of these evangelists. They pack out these huge stadiums because we're in the last days and people want their ears tickled. And that's why Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he really find faith on the earth? True biblical faith? See, the gospel is being reinvented to cater to the selfishness of man by removing the very thing that allows it to be the good news in the first place, the cross of Jesus Christ. Without the cross, there could be no salvation. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow after me. It's non-negotiable. Either I'm going to submit to his lordship or I'm going to seek to be the Lord of my life. That's the simple choice. But let me say this. A crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. And a Christless Christianity cannot save anybody. I don't care how much faith you have. So we are under attack. 
we have been called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ to earnestly contend for the truth, for the faith. It's being reinterpreted, reinvented. I mean, you look at some churches today and you wonder, is there any truth in this group? So, folks, it just becomes our responsibility to be faithful to our Savior by standing up for the truth, by listening to what he told us to do and then doing it with all your heart. And the enemy that we face without is the devil, but the enemy we face within is self. We'll talk more about self in the coming weeks. But right now, just realize that any teaching that seeks to put you in the driver's seat and does not seek to get you off the throne of your heart so that Jesus can sit down and be the true leader of your life is a false gospel. Run from it. Run from it. It will not save anybody.